Hi, I'm Brent Stafford and welcome to another edition of RegWatch on GFN.TV. It's become commonplace to take history for granted. Events and decisions from the past are first ignored and then forgotten, leaving the present and future vulnerable to mistakes. And in the case of tobacco harm reduction, failure to learn lessons from the past could cost the lives of millions. Joining us today to discuss the history of tobacco harm reduction and the seismic disruption it has brought is Harry Shapiro, author of the 2022 Global State of Tobacco Harm Reduction Report titled The Right Side of History. Since 2018, GSTHR reports have tackled the full breadth of issues in the battle over safer nicotine products. They've exposed compromised science, revealed global funding streams biased against THR, described the no-platforming culture excluding researchers, clinicians, and consumers from the international tobacco control debate, and chronicled the significant and growing evidence in support of safer nicotine products now used by over 100 million people across the world. Harry, thanks for joining us again on RegWatch. Well, uh, thank you very much for inviting me back, Brent. Uh, pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation, but first off, the report is now just out, and I highly recommend to our viewers to go to gsthr.org to check it out. So, Harry, please tell us about tobacco harm reduction. What is it, and why is it important? When people talk about tobacco harm reduction or harm reduction generally, they they make um, an analogy with people wearing seatbelts, people wearing uh, crash helmets or construction workers um, wearing safety gear on the basis that, you know, nobody's planning to ban cars or ban motorbikes or ban construction sites. So what you do is you try and reduce the dangers. You try and reduce the risks with some safety um, interventions, whether it's seatbelts or whatever which is fair enough as far as it goes. Um, but from my point of view, I think harm reduction goes beyond what I would call health and safety. Um, and it goes back really to um, the founding of the WHO in 1948. And one of its founding statements was that, that healthcare is a universal right, in which case the implication of that is that if it's a universal right, then nobody should be left behind. And it doesn't matter whether you approve of these people or what they're doing or what they might be taking, what behaviours they're exhibiting, it doesn't matter. They are entitled. And harm reduction as a kind of public health phrase, intervention, really came out of the HIV epidemic of the, of the 1980s. Why do you think the tobacco harm reduction movement has been so turbulent? I think the the one key word here that I would use is disruption. Um, there's obviously been disruption uh, within the within the industry. Uh, I mean, a whole new vaping industry has grown up. Um, the larger companies, the big tobacco companies themselves have spent quite a lot of money uh, investing in new technology, new factories, have been buying up companies to promote their tobacco harm reduction credentials. Um, but I think, so, so 
that was kind of obvious would happen because as they say no no company no commercial company wants what it what, what people call the their kodak moment uh the time when the the company kodak never believed that digital cameras would ever catch on um and were left behind of course when when the new technology happened um but I think more profoundly, well, the, the second thing is that governments, legislators, regulators have also been caught napping, really, and they've been running to try and, and catch up with the, with all the new uh, safer nicotine products. But I think more profoundly and more disturbing, I think, is the fact that the global tobacco control establishment, medical agencies, public health officials, actually see what I would call an existential threat from tobacco harm reduction. Simply because they, many of these people working in these agencies, uh, come from a period of, of tobacco wars, when life was actually a lot simpler. It was very black and white. You had evil tobacco companies with their dangerous products that kill half of the people who use them on one side, and the doctors and clinicians and public health workers on the other side. You know, the angels on one side and the devils on the other. Trouble is, of course, that the safer nicotine products have allowed a much, much safer use of nicotine uh, once taken out of the cigarette. And that's caused, you know, a huge mist, a huge grey area in the middle somewhere where, you know, people's careers, their reputations, their funding, have all been based on this this um, uh, insurmountable war with the tobacco industry. Do you think then that there's this tobacco control industrial complex? Are you speaking of an entire, you know, coordinated and integrated industry that includes researchers and in universities and public health people at state, national, and global levels? I, I think it is. I mean, obviously, one, you know, you begin to sound like some conspiracy theorist, but it's, it's quite clear that you have um, the WHO, um, you have, uh, you know, American medical and public health agencies, you have uh, doctors and health ministries all over the world that buy into the idea that tobacco harm reduction, that these products are no safer than cigarettes and may even be more dangerous. And of course, it, weaving it all together um, is some significant philanthropic funding, um, which is keeping this whole um, juggernaut, really, of opposition to tobacco harm reduction just turning over and over and over. Um, and it's it gives me no pleasure, really, to be criticising an agency like the WHO, um, who are obviously a very credible uh, and well-respected source of information across the whole the whole landscape of of communicable and non-communicable diseases. But they've really they've really failed in their leadership in relationship to trying to reduce death and disease from smoking, um, which takes 8 million people every year. Uh, and still, 30 years on, the projected figure of a billion deaths by the end of the century has not been challenged. So yes, I would say there's a fairly uh, well-funded, well-organized attempt, um, peer-reviewed journals, clinical researchers, 
legislators, politicians, NGOs, who are all banded together to try and spread as much misinformation about these new products as possible and spread what I would call fear, uncertainty and doubt amongst health professionals who are uncertain as to whether to um, recommend to people who want to quit smoking that maybe they could switch away from the most dangerous ways of consuming nicotine. And also fear, uncertainty and doubt amongst existing smokers who are read the media stories and are unclear uh, as to whether these products are actually safer than what they've been doing and their conclusions will be well if these products are not are any no safer than what i'm doing i might as well carry on smoking and that's a terrible situation for for the public health community to find itself in harry let's talk about the 2022 report a bit and if we go back to 2018 in the first report which was no fire no smoke and then 2020 right to health 2020 there was also burning issues and in 2021, a burning issue for Asia, which were all great reports. This one's different. You've taken a step back to take a look at the history. Why the historical focus? Well, all the reports that you've mentioned to date really looked um, by and large at the, they kind of set the scene. Certainly that first one, no fire, no smoke, because nobody had ever taken a global look at tobacco harm reduction most people didn't even really understand what it meant and i suspect there are still an awful lot of people who don't understand what it means um but there we kind of set out the landscape we set out the clinical evidence we set out the products what they look like how they work what the current state of regulation was um and then when it came to the next set of reports it was quite clear, and we've already referred to this, that there was a concerted opposition to tobacco harm reduction, and we needed to unpick that um, and try and get to the root of what was actually going on. Um, this report, we decided that we, we needed to kind of step back because it makes it sound as if the search for safer nicotine use only happened when you know, Hon Lick came up with his, his the very first e-cigarette in China in 2006. Um, but looking all the way back, we realised there were uh, all sorts of attempts, um, doomed in the end, I might say. Um, first of all, to find the safer cigarette, um, which was really a chimera. It was, it was really a, a doomed enterprise. Um, but all the different attempts to have certain sort of filters and, and all the things that the tobacco companies were trying to do, um, actually <laughs> already in the knowledge that they were probably wasting their time, but it was good PR. And then really a kind of hidden history about the attempts to, pr to provide non-combustible products, uh, you know, BAT, Philip Morris and others were, were in the game to try and find a way because they knew, they knew that people smoke for the nicotine, but they die from the tar. So how do you make cigarettes safer? A lot of this was kept secret, of course, because the lawyers were saying, well, hang on a minute. If we produce products and start promoting them as safer, what is that? What does that mean for the products that are already out there? Because there was still a lot of public concern in the 50s, 60s and 70s about, about tobacco, uh, about the dangers of smoking. Um, but the crucial thing really was even these efforts at 
uh, non-combustible products failed for the very simple reason that the consumers didn't like them. They didn't taste good. They didn't deliver the, the smoking experience that they wanted um, or the nicotine hit or anything like it. And that was really the nub of it. So despite the millions of pounds that were spent, they couldn't, they couldn't find the right products. But then the other kind of untold story really takes us more into the sort of the, the, the early noughties and onwards, that really a lot of what happened um, in the vaping world was consumer driven. Um, you know, thanks to the internet, there were people exchanging information and ideas, people were actually making their own, our own products. And that really resonates with me because it then it, it's similar really to what was happening in the drugs and HIV world back in the 80s that people were feeling empowered um, they felt they had agency and needed agency to try and protect people around them themselves and their friends uh, and, and so on and that's kind of what happened um, in the very early days when people were hearing about these products, what, what, what's this? You know, how does it, it work? And there were, there were, you know, new websites and chat rooms and people saying, well, I could do better than this. And they often went to their own shed at the bottom of the garden and actually did produce uh, products that were, that, that, that were better. And then eventually, of course, the, the industry itself began to take off uh, and we, we reflect that that story what happened in china what happened when the the big companies woke up to the fact that from about 2012 onwards so um i think also what what the history shows and this goes back centuries that there are certain things that you do uh, that don't work um so initially there were in, in, across europe uh, and other countries there was an attempt just to ban tobacco because it was felt to be morally repugnant um, and there's quite some quite serious punishments for people who, who, who smoked or sold the tobacco. And then kings and monarchs realised that they actually needed the tax from tobacco because they were fighting some ruinously, ru ruinously expensive wars and their treasuries were being emptied. So then they introduced tax, but they introduced tax at such a level that ordinary people can't afford it. And so what happens then? You get the illicit market. And this was going on in England centuries ago. Um, coming more up to date during this period of trying to find the safer cigarette, there were attempts to produce cigarettes with kind of little or no nicotine in them because people understood, more misunderstood, I should say, the fact that it was the nicotine that was the most dangerous element in the cigarette, when of course it was actually probably the most benign element in the, in the cigarette. Um, and so there was a kind of, you know, was enthusiasm for, for de-nicotizing, nicotinizing uh, cigarettes, which of course has come back into fashion. Um, the idea that, uh, again, it will be a disappointment, the idea that people will give up smoking because, because all they can buy is cigarettes with, no, with little or no nicotine in them. They will find workarounds and the illicit market, which is already booming, uh, is testament to the fact that people will find a workaround. If you produce products they don't like or they're too expensive. The title of the 2022 report is The Right Side of History. What does that mean? Does it actually mean there are people on the right side and people on the wrong side of this battle? Uh, yes, 
um, and it reflects back on 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 what we've touched upon uh, earlier that there is a concerted effort amongst um, credible sources of, of public health and medical information that you know the WHO and various NGOs and and health ministries and uh, medical agencies, powerful medical agencies with lots of funding behind them. CDC, FDA in America, um, all essentially, as far as we're concerned, um, they are on the wrong side of history because um, if you look at the statistics, um, the WHO produced this report. Um, it's called MPower. Uh, the, the, it's their monitoring strategy um, for determining the progress in tobacco control. And they claim that 5 billion people are protected by, by, by the regulations and controls that are in, are in place. And that's just nonsense. It's delusional. How can, how can 5 billion people be protected when 8 million people are dying? And that was, that was a, um, a forecast some years ago that we would a target we would hit by 2030 but we're already there and that is not a target to be to be an achievement to be proud of and billions of people millions of people are going to die um, and there's been research that's shown that the the framework convention on tobacco control and all the various perfectly reasonable um attempts to control tobacco use that are in place, the public smoking bans, the plain packaging, the warnings and all the rest of it are, are making just a dent or hardly a dent in these terrible mortality statistics uh, of illness and death because smoking related diseases, it, it's the most preventable non-communicable disease, you know, the, the emphysema, the cancer, the COPD. No, nobody would suggest that the, you know, these products are going to, you know, wipe out all, all of these problems, but it's what we call a third way. So we're not trying to uh, suggest to anybody that they, they stop with all their current tobacco control um, interventions and laws and policies, but they're clearly not working. Um, and if you know it's this this old thing about if you're digging a hole and you're not getting anywhere, stop digging. You know, um, and 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 I think it's actually it's twofold. I mean, you know, you might say, well, why why is there this opposition? There is this you know this whole idea of the tobacco wars and stuff. So one thing about this is that um, people are still mired in the idea that you can't trust big tobacco. That there must be something going on here. Um, and you can't trust what they say. And of course, in the past, you couldn't. You know, there, there was all kinds of kind of lies, misinformation, misdirection, and all the rest of it back in the day. Um, but it's quite clear that the independent evidence shows that these products are substantially safer. Ninety-five percent say Public Health England. And to be perfectly honest, speaking personally, I couldn't give a damn. Who's making these products? You know, if Toyota decided to make vaping devices, great. I'm not really bothered who's making them, as long as the products are out there and people can afford them and, and they're accessible. The other thing that's going on here under the, under the radar, I suppose, is uh, a moral objection to people using nicotine. Before, 
the fact that nicotine was wrapped up in a cigarette and causing all this damage meant it was easy to condemn smoking because it killed people, still does kill people. But if you take the nicotine out of the cigarette, you've got a whole different ball game. You've got a product which, according to the a chemical rather, according to the UK Royal Society of Public Health, is no more dangerous than caffeine. So unless you've got a serious heart problem, in which case you shouldn't be drinking caffeine either, um, there really is very little physical or psychological problems associated with using nicotine. Um, but from something like 2014, 2015, the WHO put a paper out, um, a kind of background paper for the uh, delegates to the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. And they quite openly said in this document that medicinal use of nicotine is acceptable. In other words, nicotine replacement therapy, gums, lozenges and patches. Recreational use of nicotine is not acceptable without any um, you know, explanation or anything. It was just a bold statement. And that to me is bringing kind of a, an ideology and morality into public health um, where it shouldn't be. So it's, it's suspicion of the industry, despite all the independent evidence and a moral objection to people using nicotine, even if it is actually not doing them any harm. And many, of course, will will benefit from using nicotine in all sorts of different ways. In my mind, it's hard not to see that then as being that the WHO is is not interested in allowing uh, people, individuals, to enjoy small pleasures. I mean, it's it's an individual pleasure, that use of nicotine, and they're saying unless it's a medical use in a non-pleasurable manner, you're not allowed to do that. Well, yes, I mean, that's absolutely right. The, there can be no other explanation for their position. I mean, they talk about, there are lots of, when these products first became available, it was going to be like, oh, well, um, it will lead young people to smoke. Well, no, it didn't. I mean, you've got to look in the, 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 the USA the FDA's own statistics on on smoking to show that teen smoking is is coming down. Vaping has made no difference to those figures. In fact, even vaping is beginning to tail off slightly. Uh, it went up a little bit and then it dropped down a, a, a again. And then it's like, well, vaping causes um, brain damage in young people, which is, you know, gobsmackingly inaccurate. Um, if vaping, if nicotine caused damage to, to young people's brain development, I think we'd have known about it by now after decades of tobacco research. Well, not to mention that there would have been a, a boatload of lawsuits decades ago <laughs> on the issue. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, I mean, there are plenty of lawsuits aimed at the tobacco industry, but none that specifically kind of related to that. It's a problem you get when you start trying to regulate or do something about non-communicable diseases. Because when you've got things like communicable diseases, you've got malaria, Ebola, COVID, all the rest of it. Um, then you need, obviously, medical intervention. You need, you know, nobody thinks it's a good idea to have malaria. You want, you want vaccines, you want um, a robust treatment system to deal with it. And it's a entirely medical condition. When you're talking about non-communicable diseases, 
it begins to drift into lifestyle choices. When you start talking about smoking, drinking, uh, eating, you know, uh, uh, diabetes and obesity and things like that, it begins to shift into more about trying to control lifestyle. And there's um, there's a danger then that there's there's a a kind of moral agenda begins to creep in about what what behaviours are acceptable and what behaviours are not. And I think that's where nicotine has found itself in relationship to WHO and its various kind of NGO, medical and public health allies. Harry, we just had Moira Gilchrist on on the show, and she's from Philip Morris International. And PMI has made a commitment to transitioning at least 50% of their business to reduce risk products by 2025. Now, is this a decision as a result of the disruption? you were talking about yeah i mean i think i think um it's a recognition like you you, you said in your introduction we've got over a hundred million people uh using various safer nicotine products whether that's vaping whether that's um heated tobacco products or various oral products so yes there's a there's a recognition that there is a growing market for these products and i think it's perfectly understandable that companies would want to move uh, in that direction. I mean, PMI have just um, negotiated the takeover of Swedish Match, and so therefore they will be adding SNUS to their harm reduction portfolio, which will greatly, I suspect, accelerate their aim of uh, of increasing their their range of products uh, that are that are smoke free. Unfortunately, this the, the progress is patchy. Um, not least, of course, because you know tobacco cigarettes uh, are still you know total global value something like eight hundred billion. Um, as far as these all these new safer nicotine products, I mean the analysis differs depends how you count it. But it's at least a market worth twenty five billion at the moment, if not more. Um, so it's still relatively small. But people, you know, they want skin in the game. But the other thing, of course, which is slowing progress, is concern in companies about regulation and control, um, because you've got governments around the world that are that have banned these products, or banned some of them, or imposed very high taxation, or have been talking about banning flavours. And various ways of of making it really difficult for these companies and their investors and shareholders, I think, to be convinced that they need to put a huge amount of effort into these products. I mean, everybody wants, everybody's doing something, but one or two companies like PMI and also I think BAT are kind of ahead of the game and, and leaving some of the others in the dust. What do you hope readers of this report will take away? I think people should realize that um, the opposition to tobacco harm reduction is actually incredibly damaging to public health globally, particularly in lower middle income countries where where most of the death and disease occurs um, and where most of the smoking happens. Um, I mean, it's one of those kind of hidden in plain sight, really. Um, people need to be aware of why we're not really making much of a dent in um, in the smoking 
related deaths and diseases, they need to be made aware that there's a huge amount of misinformation deliberately put through academic journals and into the media to try and, 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 and blacken the, the, the name of all of these products. And I have to say, it's working. It's, 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 it's not a good thing to be able to say, but it's actually working. You know, the triumph of doubt backed by the science of deception is doing a good, it's doing the job it's set out to do. So even in the UK, where these products are, you know, are, are, are readily available, with the exception of Snus, uh, which one hoped would uh, be reversed since since the UK left the European Union, but the government doesn't seem to be minded to do anything about that at the moment. But even in the UK, perception uh, of the dangers, uh, uh, the perceived dangers of vaping over cigarettes, the perceptions are getting worse, um, and certainly in other countries the same. There's still a huge a uh, chunk of the medical profession that believe nicotine causes cancer. I mean, this is basic ignorance, really. It's, it, it's nicotine illiteracy. Um, and so what we hope is that people will read this um, and, and take away the damage, take away the notion. or Because we've underlined it in everything we've done. We've, we've said it in reports, in conferences, in speeches, in interviews, um, you know, uh, and it's a message we have to keep hammering home. The 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 battle that that people in the tobacco harm reduction community face, whether they're consumers or researchers or public health people, is that the, the disinformation campaign that's underway. Um, it's get out of jail free card. It's just to say, oh, well, you're all in the, you, you're all big tobacco shields. You're all in the pockets of big tobacco. So of course you would say that these products are much safer. And I turn around and say, well, look at the bloody evidence. You know, Public Health England, National Institute of Clinical Accidents, British Medical Association. You know, even the FDA have started to give market approval to some of these products. New Zealand government has taken a reasonably pragmatic approach to these. So, you know, and there are countries in the Far East that are considering, um, you know, uh, liberalising some of their rules and regulations about these products. So, you know, this is, this is outside the realm of, of big tobacco science. The evidence is there. The latest report from the UK government, 8,000 pages long, uh, reiterates the the same thing they've been saying, you know, since the first reports a few years ago, that these products are demonstrably safer. One of the things that struck me, Harry, about the report is such a strong focus on the consumer and, and how the consumer drove the development of this. And I get the sense that part of that focus is one is to is to try to take activists focus on big tobacco a little off and try to go, hey, look, this is a consumer driven movement. Consumers are completely written out the script of um, negotiations and strategies and policies. Um, so if you make a comparison with COP27, you know, there are 40,000 people in Sharm El Sheikh, stakeholders from every conceivable viewpoint. Um, when, when, you know, the tobacco control establishment get together for their COP meetings, the whole thing is, is you know, completely uh, regimented. Uh, media are kept out. Consumer activists are kept out. 
the only NGOs allowed in are the the ones who follow the party line, um, and and so you know there's there's no there's no meeting in the middle, there's no attempt to engage with the people who use these products because the tobacco controlled establishment doesn't want to use these products. Um, they just they just they they just don't want them. So you know. What's the point of engaging with these people? Because we don't even want them to be doing this in the first place. Um, what what brings about a change in all of this? I don't know, but I think, and this bit isn't in the report, but it's something I intend to say when we actually launch the report. If there was one thing that could help speed this process up, is if the WHO actually came clean they don't have to go away for five years and produce a 10 volume report. All they need to do is produce one press statement that says, OK, we've now had another look at all the evidence and we are prepared to state that these products are significantly safer than smoking. One, two, that they do actually help smokers switch away from from smoking cigarettes um, to a safer, uh, and, may, and also the evidence is that they will help some people quit altogether. And the third point is that they should be encouraging member states to, in, uh, to enact risk proportionate legislation. So in a sense, do what you like to cigarettes, but, but make these other products accessible to whoever wants them and then you can leave it to the market to decide you know price points what particular product is 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 most acceptable for what particular part of the world but if the who brought out you know one side of a4 press release um that would begin to speed up this process i believe